Shown as one of the 12 minor prophets. We're going to be looking at the concluding chapter, chapter 4 of Jonah. And we've seen that Jonah is a book that is full of God's mercy and compassion. And we saw in chapter 1 Jonah's disobedience. He's disobedient and he runs from the Lord. And the Lord pursues him, chases after him. And then in chapter 2, we saw Jonah's repentance. And Jonah prays in the belly of the fish to the Lord. And it's a prayer of thanksgiving. And the focus is that God is where salvation comes from. That God is a merciful God. That salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we looked at chapter 3 and we saw Jonah's obedience. He preaches to Nineveh. And we really saw God's activity in that passage last week. God recommissioning Jonah, sending him out again. And we saw that God causes a revival in Nineveh. The work of the Spirit working in those people's hearts. And then we saw that God relents from disaster, pouring out his compassion on the city of Nineveh. And now we come to the final chapter, and we return to Jonah's disobedience. Jonah's been obedient, repentant, and or is disobedient, repentant, and obedient, now he's disobedient again. Uh, and that's really a reaction to God's mercy, this passage. And, and in it, we'll see that God is going to pose three questions in his cross-examination. And he's really going to defend his actions in those three questions. <clears throat> And it's interesting, this, this chapter kind of ties the whole book together. We're going to see themes and phrases and references throughout the rest of the book. They are woven together to this final point. And you really see the unity of this book well. So let us read God's holy word from Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. But Jonah was greatly displeased. And became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up for Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned 
about that great city. Let us pray together. God, we come before you and we ask for your power. We ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through me to see what your scriptures say. Father, And we pray that you would do these things by the power of your spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. A man, uh, uh, there's a quote by a famous preacher who said, A man that does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. A man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over evil things is either a fungus or a wicked man. <laughs> and that quote is getting at this idea that a good person should be righteously anger, angered at sin, at evil. And this is what Jonah thinks he is at. He thinks he's in this state. He thinks he's full of righteous anger when he's simply acting like a wicked man. His behavior, John Calvin put it, is monstrous. He said it's most it's a most unseemly thing when a man, when a mean creature rises up against God and in a boisterous spirit contends with him. This is monstrous, and Jonah was in this state of mind. We see Jonah in a rage. And our two points today are looking really at this childish reaction and this divine rebuke. You see the childish reaction and this divine rebuke. And first, as we look at this childish reaction, the first five verses, you have to say, well, a reaction requires a first an action. And you see this chapter, chapter 4, is really a response to chapter 3. It's a continuation and elaboration of that idea. We see that in that first verse, where it really says... It was greatly evil to Jonah, and he burned with anger. What's the it? What does he say? He's saying this is evil. He says moral indignation in his eyes over this. It's abhorrent to him, this evil. And what is it? Well, you look at 310, and it is that Nineveh repented, and God relented. That is what is evil. Jonah is frustrated by the actions of Nineveh and the response of God. And you might say, well, this is an immature response, to say the least, for a prophet of God. It is cer- certainly so. F- Sinclair Ferguson said that how we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. Is that not the case here? Where we see Jonah's heart, and it is childish. It is immature. And we see that first in this prayer. You see this prayer that's in verse 2 and 3? The nature of this prayer is childish. Now, at first, you might think, well, it's good he's praying. Chapter 1, he's not praying. He runs. He won't pray. And then chapter 2, he finally prays. So now we come to the second prayer. Like, okay, Jonah's angry, and he's going to pray. That's good. And then we look at how he prays. And you see that his prayer is childish. First, it's childish because it's selfish. Six times in the English, nine times in the Hebrew, I, me, or my is mentioned. My homeland. I said. I knew. He's like a little child saying, me, 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 mine, mine, mine. But it's not just a selfish prayer. It's an accusatory prayer. It's a prayer of protest 
rather than a prayer of submission. Chapter 2 was all about submitting to God. Now he's protesting, he's accusing God. He, he quotes the Old Testament passages, passages of the God's grace and wonder, passages you love to hear, and he, and he repeats them to God as an accusation. I knew you were gracious. You almost want to laugh at him. I knew you were loving. I knew you would relent. You want to take Jonah aside and say, Now, Jonah, you're irritated because God is not bringing fire and brimstone down. You're irritated God is patient. You're irritated that God is loving and caring. And these passages, these references are are throughout the Old Testament. These are normal ways that God is described. Gracious, steadfast love, bounding in love. These are just pictures, and Jonah is accusing God with them. He's taking his word and he's using it as a tool to attack, to try to attack God. And it's childish. It's a childish attempt. And it's also childish because Jonah's accusing God of being merciful. While it's God's mercy that got him there in the first place. You see, he's, 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 he's basically, he's biting the hand that fed him. He's saying, you're condemning God because he is merciful to Nineveh when he was merciful to you? Don't you see? You haven't really thought this through, Jonah. These are childish accusations. So his prayer is selfish, and it's accusatory, and it's also defensive. That's the third reason it's childish. Now, most of us are not first-time readers of Jonah, but this would be a spoiler alert here. He tells us what he was doing the whole time. and we're As first-time readers, we're, this is a big reveal. We, we wouldn't have known this when he went to the city of Nineveh, that the reason that he ran was because he thought God would be merciful. He fled because of God's mercy. And and it really exposes the heart of Jonah, doesn't it? It exposes where he is. And it's funny that Jonah is returning in his prayer to his disobedience of chapter 1. He's going all the way back to it and he's defending it. Saying, I should have done it all along. This is why I did it. And he's defending his disobedience. That is a childish move to defend your disobedience to God who's already rebuked you for it. And there, he, that's what he's doing. So it's a selfish prayer, it's an accusatory prayer, it's a defensive prayer. These are all reasons why it's childish. But it's also a suicidal prayer. Verse 3 says, Take my life away. It's better for me to die than to live. Doesn't that sound like chapter 1 to you again? Chapter 1, when he's on the boat, and he tells the sailors, Throw me into the ocean. He tells him to throw, he wants to die. Throw me into the stormy seas. It's a, it's a childish overreaction, and it's really ironic, because Jonah is alive because of God's mercy. That's the reason he's alive in chapter 2, because of God's mercy. And now, he wants to die because of God's mercy to another pe- people. There's this irony there, this, this ridiculousness to it. So this is a, a childish prayer because it's selfish. Me, me, me. It's an accusatory prayer. God, it is your fault for being so nice and loving. It's defensive. I was right the whole time to run away. And it's suicidal. Just kill me, God. It's not the thankful, submissive prayer that we saw in chapter 2. This is ingratitude. This is resistance and arrogance. And how does God deal with his child, this rebellious child? He brings one brilliant question. And these questions are going to build. But in verse 4, he says... Do you have any right to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? And, and, and Jonah doesn't speak back, doesn't have any response. What does Jonah do? 
he goes out to the east of the city and he sits down and builds a shelter and he waits. Now it's interesting, east of the city, that's kind of a random detail and it doesn't mean anything at first, but we realize that east of the city is the opposite of Jerusalem. He's not on his way home. He has no intention of leaving. He's crossed the city and he's planted himself on the other side. And he's waiting there. You see, he's waiting, he's hoping that judgment will come. The idea is that right now the 40 days are not up. They've repented, they're in, they're in sack, sackcloth and ashes, and he's hoping that Nineveh is going to return, is going to turn from the repentance, and God's going to destroy him. And he wants a good view. Outside the city, plenty of distance, he's got a nice shelter there, and he's going to watch and wait to see what God will do. And he's really pouting almost. He's almost sulking out there. You kind of get this childish image. And it's interesting, there's a funny um, connection here that we don't doesn't jump off the page to most of us, but, but to the Jewish reader it would have. And that's in verse 4. He made himself a shelter or a booth. Now, this, this, this is a makeshift tent or some sort of booth outside, some sort of temporary structure. And now, I don't know if you remember, you probably don't, but there's seven feasts, seven major Jewish feasts. And one of them is the Feast of Booths. This is a remembrance of the time when they were wandering in the wilderness and when they lived in tents or in booths and when God was in the tabernacle. And so it's remembering God's providence and his manna that provided for them and his mercy in relenting. And that's what it's a celebration of annually. Now Jonah's making a booth and he's hoping that God is not going to have any providence, providential care and is actually going to judge so there's almost this contrast here. It's really a clear indictment of Jonah's behavior. He set up a booth, something that's supposed to commemorate God's providence, and he's doing it to hope God's going to judge. And, and when we look at Jonah's reaction, we might laugh. These are silly attempts to accuse God. We might pity him, his blindness. Or maybe we feel baffled by his short memory of God's mercy. But poor Jonah, we say. Well, poor Jonah, he's lost. But you know what? We can be like Jonah. I want to kind of bring it into a different situation, a couple of other examples to kind of give us this picture of why Jonah would be angry. Imagine you're a Holocaust victim and you see your guard being judged and you want for justice. You want that justice. But rather the witness, the judge relents when he sees the remorse the guard has, the genuine remorse. And that doesn't bring your family back. That would make you angry. Why? Or if you were to see your spouse's murderer repent and receive mercy, wouldn't that make you furious? How can that be? Or imagine ISIS, who recorded and posted videos of beheadings, of murders, put it all over the internet, of Christians being killed. They display that publicly. Imagine them repenting. They're believing, being completely forgiven, and becoming a grounded, Bible-believing group. And Jonah's sitting there, watching ISIS being converted in his eyes. All these terrorists are going to be with him in heaven. That makes him a bit mad. They're going to live with eternity with these Ninevites? And, and he's doing this, so he's looking at ISIS, he's looking at Nineveh. They've repented. And he looks back at his homeland. He looks back at the church. He looks back at Israel. And what does he see? 
150 years they haven't repented. And he's angry. God, why are they repenting? This is ridiculous, God. How can this be? What are you doing? Why? Where is your justice? How could you do that? Why would you do that? And you start to feel maybe Jonah's childishness, even as it is childish, we can relate to it. And the reason is, is that we understand our theology in our head, but sometimes we don't understand it in our heart. Jonah doesn't know God's character. He doesn't actually get grace. He might believe it. He might be as saved, but he wants to package grace to worthy sinners. And so do we. We want to package grace for worthy sinners. Brian Estelle said, it's easy for us to pity the pitiable. But what about those who are not? This is what makes God's mercy so profound. Do we actually understand what it means that God is gracious? Truly gracious. Because we want to say, oh, grace can be extended to those who are trying hard and need a little help. But God is gracious to rebellious, wicked people. God justifies the ungodly, the wicked. You don't believe me? Look at Romans 5, 4. To the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God justifies the wicked, or the ESV puts it as the ungodly. And are we like Jonah, ignorant of God's character, unable to recognize and accept the grace of God? We try to package God's grace, maybe. Try to hold it in a box. Jonah had no monopoly on the grace of God, and we don't have a monopoly on the grace of God either. He wanted to set conditions with God's grace. But to set conditions for God's grace is to misunderstand the nature of grace. You see, grace is in the best sense of the word, arbitrary. In the best sense of the word. Christian grace has no explanation simply by God's love, God's will. In Deuteronomy 7, it says that God looked at Israel and it says, The Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. I love that. Israel, I chose you. I set you aside. It says in there, it's this treasured possession. Not because you were strong and worthy. In fact, you were weak and pathetic when I think about it. But I did it because I love you. And that's what grace is. So we have to realize, we have to not be like Jonah. We have to Never resent the grace of God and realize it is free. It is arbitrary according to his will. And we cannot understand, we cannot reason with it, we cannot try to channel it in certain ways. God will be gracious to who he wants to be. One scholar said, Ultimately, divine grace towards sinners cannot be understood. It does not have a reason. It simply reflects the way God is. This is the way God is. He chooses to have mercy and grace to who he wills. And do we know the character of God? Do we know grace well enough to understand this and accept this? 
Or are we angry or frustrated that God pours grace on them? That God causes them to grow and flourish and not us? Let's not resent God's grace. Rather, when we see it, wherever we see it, let us praise him and worship him because of it. That is a clear and serious warning for the church. We have never, nor will we ever earn or deserve or control God's grace. It is free. It is arbitrary. And that's what we see from this divine, this, this, this childish reaction. But then we move into this divine rebuke. This divine rebuke really has an object lesson, and then it has a cross-examination. And the object lesson in verses 6 through 8 is, is one of those, those things that every child knows. I don't know why, but you remember this really well. It just is this picture of this bug eating the plant. I always remember as a child. But there's a key word in there. It's repeated three times. I don't know if you picked up on it. It's provided or appointed. For 6, God provided a, worm, a vine. For 7, God provided a worm. For 8, God provided a wind. And it's used one other time in the whole book of Jonah. And it refers to the fish. God provided a great fish. So God causes the plant to grow, takes care of Jonah. Jonah's happy. He's swung from rage to happiness. And then God provides a worm to lose his shade, to eat the plant. And then he doesn't just like leave him in his lack of shade. He brings a scorching east wind. And he provides a blazing sun. And, and, and it's really, it's interesting. The book opens with God sending a wind on the ocean. Now God is sending a hot wind. That was a wind of a storm. This is a hot wind. And I want you to realize um, about this wind. It's something interesting. I don't know if you've ever watched the news and seen forest fires in Southern California. They're always on breaking news, and there's some fire, and there's flames on the hills, and they're talking about the wind is blowing, and they can't figure out which direction it's going to go. It's in, in Southern California, there's a thing called the Santa Anas, and it's this wind that comes from the east that switches the direction of the normal wind. Normally, it's an offshore breeze, and all the storms come from, from, the, from the west going east, and this comes from the east going west, and it's hot, and they can get up to... 80 miles an hour, these winds. They'll blow down trees. And they come every year. And you just feel the, 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 the temperature rise as it switches. And the climate in Israel is almost identical to that of the Southern California region. And this word is a reference to that, that type of wind. This hot wind that would have switched directions, that would have come on occasion, and would have raised the temperature drastically. And it really would have created true discomfort for Jonah. I mean, this is not that Jonah's overreacting. You know, heat stroke is a real thing. If you're out in the desert, you don't have any shade, and it's a hot wind raising the temperature, and the sun's beating down on you, he would feel miserable. You would too. But once again, he, he wants to die. It's a bit of an overreaction. He's swung from being angry and ready to die to very happy, and now he's angry and ready to die again. And, and I think what we want to see from this, one really important thing, is this repetition of provides shows us that God is control is in control. God's moving this narrative. God is directing it. God is leading it. God provides. God works. God is moving. 
God is governing his creation. And it's also key to note that God provides through means. That is, God gave shade to Jonah by a plant growing, not by a miraculous cloud he put there. God removes the shade, not by sending fire down from heaven to destroy the plant, but by sending a worm. Worms kill plants. That's what they do. God warms up the situation, not through some miraculous feature. He brings the wind, a wind that would have been there. And the heat and the sun, all things we experience. And I think it's important to realize these are normal events in the sense that plants do grow. Worms chew on plants. That that winds blow around and suns blaze down. These are normal events. And God uses the means of his providence, the ruling over his creation, to lead and move and direct history and events. And that's not changed. That's not changed. Now we get the perspective the divine perspective here. We get a divine commentary on those events, that plant, that wind, that storm. And this week, you are not going to get a divine commentary on a storm or the warm weather or whatever happens. You're not. But it's not that God has changed the way he works. He still is directing, guiding, and leading events by bugs, by weather, by the sun, by all sorts of things. And we have to remember that. God's not changed. He's still sovereign. He still directs our lives even this week. We see that in Jonah. And that's that, you know, so God has laid the foundation with his object lesson. And now he's going to bring it home with this cross-examination, these questions. He's brought in one question. He's got this object lesson, this living parable. And now he's going to bring two questions to drive home this divine rebuke. And the second poignant question is, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? See that in verse 9? He adds the vine. He's asking a similar question in verse 4, but now he's referring it to the vine. And last time Jonah was silent. He just walks off and sulks and pouts away from the city. But this time, he doesn't. He talks back to God and says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. Jonah justifies himself before God. And these are Jonah's last words of the whole book. And then God unveils the self-contradictory position of Jonah. He set everything in place, and now he's going to explain it all to Jonah. And he puts it on one side, your pity. Jonah, you pity, you care for, you are concerned, you had sympathy for this plant, which you did not make, which is not yours, which you did not tend, and which is fleeting. It came up in a day and died overnight. It's just immediate. It's one day. The short, temporary thing that you had nothing invested in, you were concerned about that. And then he puts on the other side, my pity, my concern is for this city that has 120,000 people. It's important. And then he says, they don't know their right hand from their left. Which is probably just an idiom that means... They can't distinguish. We see this in several other passages. The priests didn't know their right hand from their left. It meant they had no moral compass. They are morally lost. He's saying these are helpless people. There's a lot of them, and they're helpless. They don't know their right hand from their left. And so we see, it's not saying that they're not accountable, by the way. It's, they're still accountable for their actions, but he's saying they are sheep without a shepherd. And God cares for them because they are morally lost. They need help. 
And then he throws in their cattle. You see that? He's like, in case you hated the people, but you love this plant, there's a lot of livestock there too. A lot of God's creation that are animals that are going to be destroyed. At least have pity for them if you can't have pity for the Ninevites. You see, he's just bringing it in. you you got to realize what is at stake here. And with that foundation, with those two contrasts, he asks the question, may I not have pity for this great city? May I not have pity for this great city? The argument is from the lesser to the greater. If this, then how much more that? If you're pitying this plant, how much more can I pity this city? That's what he's saying. You had pity on a plant you didn't toil over. It wasn't yours. As for me, I have pity on a city I made. They are full of 120,000 souls and a lot of cattle. A lot of my creation is there. I have a right to that. And really what he's doing is God is laying down the God card. I'm the creator. You're not. I'm concerned about this because I made them and they're mine. And I'm allowed to be. Who are you to be angry toward me for the way I handle my creation? One scholar said, Is the Creator obliged to ask Jonah's permission in order to exercise his mercy? What we want to see here is that when we cry out to God, when we lament disaster, when we complain to Him, all these things which are done in the Psalms, things that are good and okay to do, we are always to do it with an attitude that acknowledges God as Creator. And submits to him. And acknowledges ourself as creatures. And Jonah has forgot his station in life. He's forgotten his station in life. He's saying, you are not God. The events do not revolve around you, Jonah. You have no right to judge. Jonah's blurred the distinction between the creator and the creature. And then the book ends with that. The book ends God gets the last word. He asks a probing question. And then we want to go, what does Jonah do? Did Jonah repent? Did he turn? And we don't know. And that's, that, that's intentional. That is the question of whether Jonah repented is a moot point. It's not the purpose. Because the book intentionally ends this way. The author wants us to feel the weight of this final question. The question falls to us, to you and me. And it really, it says this, Jonah didn't have his priorities straight. Do you have your priorities straight? That's what he's saying. Jonah had more compassion for the plants than for the people. Jonah cared more about his own comfort and ease than this metropolis. Jonah shows no heart for the lost. And we see God's heart for the lost. And the priority is laid there. God has a heart for the lost. So we have a heart for the lost. One scholar said, Jonah's concern for a plant is trivial by comparison with all that is at stake in the sudden and violent death of human beings. Do we care more about our own ease than immortal souls? Do we care more about the lost than we do about our possessions and our lifestyle? And I'm not saying don't enjoy this world and go out and be a monk. That's not the point of this. It's saying what is your priority? 
Where is your heart on these things? What is your passion? What is it that you are focused on? Jonah is worked up about this plant, and he's worked up that these graceless people have received grace, but we are to be worked up about the lost and their need. Do we agree with 1 Timothy 2, where it says, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Or look in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Do we pity the plant in our life or the great city of Nineveh? Is our heart set on the one or the other? What is our priority? Sinclair Ferguson asked this probing question. Do we care more about the contents of our garage or home than we do about fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more about our own comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world in our time? The statistics of our giving or praying or going provide embarrassing readings to the church. I'm not calling you to go out and be a missionary today or to go out and evangelize this afternoon or to give all of your money this week to the church. But we're asking, what is your heart? What is your priority? Where is your heart set? What is your heart set on? And I'll close with this illustration. Uh, I knew, I, I remember this, this man I met who was a missionary. He was at the end of his life and he was, he was ailing he was uh, bedridden, but he had a sharp mind, could think clearly. And we, we went, I went to visit him, and he, he, he didn't bring it up, but we asked, we asked how, is he, how is he sleeping? He's not sleeping well, because his legs ached, he had discomfort, and it would keep him awake. I said, what do you do when you're awake? Well, I pray. I pray for people. I'm praying for people to be saved. I'm praying for the church. And here's this man who's not worried about his discomfort. He's not worried about the plant, the lack of shade. He's not worried about the scorching heat in his life. He's worried about the city of Nineveh, the lost. And that is to be us. Our focus should not be on the comfort and the shade in our life, but about the lost. The city of Nineveh that is around us every day, wherever you go, wherever you travel. God is concerned about the great city of Nineveh. Are you? Let's pray. God, open our hearts to hear your word, to have a priority priority that focuses on the eternal things as God does in Jonah 4 as you show us that you have that may we have that priority may we not forget our station in life that we are creatures and that you are the creator but father may we focus on the eternal things give us a heart to understand your grace your mercy that is so abundant so free it surprises us and shocks us at times. Give us a heart to see that, to see your character and your care 
and your direction of history, Father. May we see these things in your word, that we may apply them to our lives, that we may walk in those steps and those paths, and we may think in those ways. This day and this week and this month and continuing on, that we may be conformed to your word. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.